Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. And finally, today, investigators, we are getting back to the star of this particular arc, Marilyn Monroe, our shimmering, beautiful mirror ball. We have used the song Mirrorball by Taylor Swift for Marilyn's arc. She's been spinning on her tallest tiptoes in her highest heels just for us as we have manifested her story along with other connected stories over the last few months. And now we know the end is near. Today, we're going to take a slight detour into This Is Me Trying by Taylor Swift as well. This is Marilyn Monroe from 1960 to 1961. We're going to make it back to Mirrorball for our bridge next week, but before we begin our episode today, I do want to give enormous thanks for our newest supporters over at patreon.com slash done and done. I'm so grateful for you and the done and done Patreon community. In my spyglass today, I see Jamie S. and Jessica L. Holy cats, you rock a thousand thank yous. And a big thank you to all of you for coming to join me as we return back into Marilyn's story. From 1960 to 1961, connecting Marilyn back together with some of the players introduced within the last episodes. At this point, by 1960, we have less than three years before Marilyn's tragic passing. 32 months, really. I look at this almost as Marilyn of a thousand days. Marilyn is trying. This is Marilyn's years really trying. Having it all crumble down and trying to rebuild yet again. What happens in these 24 months of 1960 and 1961? Let's investigate. A lot of movement in the year of 1960. Marilyn Monroe will win the Golden Globe for Some Like It Hot this year. It starts out okay. There's another film in the works, though, preparing to be made this year, a little film called Let's Make Love. This film is co-starring Yves Montand. George Cooker is going to match Marilyn and Montand up for this picture, even though it is Arthur Miller that suggests Yves Montand for the role. This is after Arthur Miller rewrites the script of Let's Make Love to give Marilyn Monroe more screen time, leaving the original actor chosen for the part, Gregory Peck, looking for the exit. Not that other actors aren't offered the role. Yul Brynner, Cary Grant, Charlton Heston, Rock Hudson, and even Jimmy Stewart will all refuse the part. Maybe they turn this part down to star in other roles or because of the reputation at the time of Marilyn Monroe. There are some actors, though, that will take some quick cameos in the film, including Bing Crosby, Milton Berle, and Gene Kelly. Now, it does not seem to be a problem that Yves Montan does not speak a word of English at the time when he is starring in Let's Make Love, but he's a professional and it's going to be fine and Yves Montand and his lovely wife, French actress Simone Signoret, will head on over to California for the filming. Yves and Simone will be sharing some neighboring bungalows at the Beverly Hills Hotel for their stay in California, which will have some consequences. See, Let's Make Love was the title of the movie, but Marilyn and Montand will take that title very literally. 
the highly publicized affair from the two stars of the film will have lasting consequences, although in different ways. I want to focus in on the Yves Montan and Simone Signore portion of this. See, these two have met back in 1949 and are pretty much smitten with each other immediately. This is after the affair that Montand has with Edith Piaf and Simone Starr is on the rise as well. Their love affair is on and the two marry and their story is utterly fascinating, but in this episode, we are looking into a very small slice of time, just the few months with them as a couple in early 1960. I'm sourcing this bit from the MarilynReport.com. It's an excellent summation of what is happening with one of our couples. In 1960, Simone won an Oscar for Room at the Top, and the two left for Los Angeles. Here, Montand accepted George Cougar's proposal to star in Let's Make Love. The French couple stayed in a bungalow adjacent to that of Arthur Miller and Marilyn Monroe. The four often met for dinner, and Simone did not sense the danger, until it was too late. Passion overwhelmed the two lovers before her eyes. It was her feminine vulnerability that struck me the most when I forgot I was next to the star Monroe, Eves Montand would say, adding, not for a second did I think about breaking up with my wife, but if she slammed the door, I probably would have rebuilt my life with Marilyn. Simone did not slam the door. She just returned to Paris humiliated, waiting for everything to end, as always. And so it happened despite Marilyn's attempts to keep Montand with her. Montand commented gratefully, The beauty of Simone is that she never stopped me from having a good half-liter when I was thirsty. In 1960, she quickly realized that a man of 39 years old and in full strength of age could not be left behind for three months in Hollywood with a woman like Marilyn in his arms. Years later, in her memoirs, Simone wrote generously of her rival, I never hated her. That's one fallout from the affair that happens with Marilyn and Montand. Here's the other side. Arthur and Marilyn, not as French, not as diplomatic. Arthur Miller is pretty much big mad and out from this point on. Maybe this affair was the last straw for him, although Arthur Miller does have a whole lot of himself wrapped up in the next film that is happening, The Misfits. And so does Marilyn Monroe. The summer's going to be terrible, but from this point on, with Marilyn Monroe and Arthur Miller, you know the end is near. When filming on Let's Make Love Ends, Marilyn has a lot of time to spend without her husband and what can keep a girl occupied. As we're heading into the summer months of 1960 here, John F. Kennedy is in the race for president, meaning all of his jack pack in California are working hard to elect him, both in front of the scenes and behind the scenes, too. Frank Sinatra is writing songs for the campaign, stumping for him. Everyone's stumping for Jack, really, and the whole crew is hosting donor parties and aligning all of their efforts to ensure that Jack Kennedy is top guy come 1961. In the summer of 1960, though, a few things happen. Marilyn Monroe will celebrate her 34th birthday on June the 1st. This will be the most major news of June because everything really is heating up for the month of July. 
the month of July brings to us the Democratic National Convention. The 1960 Democratic National Convention was held July 11th through 15th in Los Angeles, California. Marilyn is there with no Arthur Miller and with all of the Kennedy camp. The second night of the convention, it is to Pacini's that Marilyn, Jack Kennedy, Peter Lawford, and Kenneth O'Donnell will go to. This is according to James Spada from his book about Peter Lawford, The Man Who Knew the Secrets. James Spada writes that there was a little action before dinner with Marilyn and Jack. Marilyn will giggle to Peter, saying that Jack's performance earlier had been very democratic and very penetrating. According to Marilyn's longtime maid, Lena Pepitone, Kennedy was, quote, always telling her dirty jokes, pinching her and squeezing her. She told me that he was always putting his hand on her thigh. This evening at Puccini, apparently, he continued northward, running his hand further under Marilyn's dress. He hadn't counted on going that far, Marilyn told Lena, laughing. When he discovered that she wasn't wearing any panties, quote, he pulled back and turned red. That's dinner and a show, I guess, at Puccini's. But that's not all, because there's a little scandal that comes out of the Democratic National Convention and some controversy coming here that I want to intersect in this story. I am taking this next bit directly from biography.com. It gives a terrific summation of something else going on during the Democratic National Convention, also setting the stage for what's coming the beginning of 1961. This little bit regards Sammy Davis Jr., Rat Pack member, and legendary best friend of Frank Sinatra. Like Sinatra and the rest of his Hollywood pals, Sammy Davis Jr. threw his support behind JFK. A singer, actor, and dancer who got his start in show business when he was a toddler, Davis succeeded during an era of deep racial prejudice and discrimination, bristling at how white audiences openly adored him while he was on the stage. However, Davis was also criticized by many in the black community for his willingness to play what they considered racist stereotypes. Throughout the 1960 campaign, Davis's personal life was in the headlines, thanks to his romance with white actress Mae Britt. When the couple announced their engagement in June, the reaction was vicious. In an era when interracial marriages were legally prohibited in dozens of states, the Loving versus Virginia U.S. Supreme Court decision striking down these laws was still several years away. Davis and Britt were pilloried. Britt's studio contract was canceled, and the couple received death threats. When Davis appeared alongside other entertainers at the Democratic National Convention in Los Angeles that summer, he was loudly booed and deeply wounded. The Kennedy campaign, largely funded and closely controlled by Joseph Kennedy, grew fearful of the impact Davis's notoriety might have on the campaign, thanks in part to the racist, anti-segregationist, anti-miscegenation views of a large swath of Southern Democrats, without which JFK would lose the election. Davis was reportedly pressured to delay his marriage until after the election, and the couple finally wed in mid-November, just days after JFK's victory. Causes a lot of problems there. They're going to come and creep up for us in a little while. 
Something also interesting to connect at this point in our episode as it pertains to our man Nick. Dominic Dunn is not a fan of John Kennedy. Dominic does not support his campaign. Dominic, in fact, is so against Kennedy in 1960 that Dominic spearheads a group called Catholics Against Kennedy. Now, not only do the Dunn's political leanings at the time swing Republican, but I can also imagine that Dominic Dunn has seen a few things in his years living in California now, especially living next door to Peter Lawford's home that might cement this mixture for Dominic into a more solid state of anti. The irony of that, though, is Dominic Dunn will write so much about the Kennedys in his future. Not only do the Kennedys not go away, they really circle back into Dominic Dunn's third act. Marilyn Monroe, in the summertime, back in California, running with the Rat Pack. Not unusual, they've been hanging around for years now. Frank Sinatra, at this time, does own his own little hotel lodge and casino, and Marilyn Monroe is spending a lot of her time this year as well there. Marilyn will continue to use the Calneva as a getaway during the filming of her next movie, The Misfits. August 1960 does begin filming for The Misfits, the last completed film of both Marilyn Monroe and Clark Gable. It's a rough summer for everyone. Besides filming outside of Reno, Nevada in the desert and the ridiculously hot temperatures that that comes with, There are problems all over on the set as well, just not outside influences. See, Arthur Miller wrote this play, The Misfits, for Marilyn Monroe. This is the wife he loved in his fantasy brain years ago. The Misfits is supposed to be an apology for Marilyn Monroe, a valentine, so to speak. For all the crappy diary entries, for the miscarriage that Marilyn suffered, The Misfits is a penance from Arthur Miller to her. Arthur Miller will tell his biographer, Christopher Bigsby, a version of this, saying, I would not have written it except for Marilyn. I wrote it for her. It was the only time I did write anything for an actor, and had I not known her, I would not have begun such a thing. She had lost a child in early pregnancy, which really upset her a lot, so it was kind of a gift. It was also the expression of a kind of belief in her as an actress. The script is finished moons and moons ago, but the production had been delayed by Fox for the filming of Some Like It Hot and Let's Make Love. So by the time production does begin, Marilyn Monroe and Arthur Miller are not happy with each other. They're very much on the outs. Marilyn's hot off her affair with Yves Montand and and well, still fooling around with Jack Kennedy, too. Marilyn Monroe, in my opinion at this point, knows she has one foot out the door. The marriage between Arthur and Marilyn will really break down real time during the filming. Arthur Miller will say, By the time we got to make the film, we were no longer man and wife. The film was there, but the marriage was not. So many challenges on this set, not just the dissolution of her marriage. See, Marilyn is filming with her childhood idol, Clark Gable. Marilyn has imagined Clark Gable as a father figure her whole entire life. Marilyn wants to do well. She wants to impress him. She wants to make good things happen on this film. 
and is surrounded by challenges that one normally does not face. I am not a film critic, but Arthur Miller writing The Misfits as a love letter valentine for his wife really misses the mark for me. I could say a lot about my personal feelings in the dissection of this script and its pathos, but alas, we are not a film analysis podcast here at Done and Done. What do you need to know? John Huston is directing The Misfits. He knows Marilyn from Making the Asphalt Jungle many years ago, and Marilyn loves working with him. Marilyn experienced a breakthrough in her stardom working with John Huston all those years ago, and this should be something to look forward to. The film will be released by United Artists. The Misfits is the most expensive black and white production in history, at least up into that time. The month of August has been super hot, like melt-your-face-off-hot temperatures. Marilyn Monroe's marriage is breaking down. In addition to it breaking down, she has to work with her husband on set daily. It's exhausting. So exhausting, in fact, that the headlines at the end of August announce Marilyn Monroe's hospitalization for heat exhaustion, although it's a little bit more than that that's actually happening. Production on The Misfits is halted for about two weeks. And the valentine that Arthur Miller wrote for his wife Marilyn Monroe just isn't a valentine. The men's parts are better in the film. Paula Strasberg is also managing Marilyn, and Arthur Miller is lurking over both of their shoulders with his own big ideas. Marilyn Monroe is truly in crisis at this point. She has a debilitating lack of confidence around Clark Gable, although Clark Gable is the kindest to Marilyn on the set. That set being filled with more difficulties than one could count. One other little bit here taking us back to Arthur Miller. Arthur Miller, on the set of The Misfits, is where he will meet his future wife. The whole film really just seems to be a perfect storm, and this is Marilyn trying. On September 4th, Arthur Miller will officially pack his bags and move on out. This is even before The Misfits wraps. Newspapers will announce the headlines of the split between Marilyn and Arthur November the 12th or so. So think about, right, in those two months, what's happening with our girl. Adding to all of it, the day after the announcement of the public breakup, there is a legend that passes. The day after filming wraps, Clark Gable passes away of a heart attack. This is November 14th and Marilyn Monroe is devastated. It's a lot to handle and process in a very short amount of time. 1960 has included some pretty bad times for Marilyn Monroe. Her marriage to Arthur Miller is over. Taking into account at this point in her life at 34 years old, three marriages, three divorces, as well as three miscarriages. Marilyn is taking pills to sleep. She's taking pills to wake up. She is worried about her age, mid-30s, at this time and what is to come of her and her career. Marilyn's last two films have been failures and maybe she's not able to play the sex symbol anymore or so she thinks. The Misfits, that valentine from Arthur Miller that is not a valentine at all, comes with its own special trauma 
and next up, her childhood idol Clark Gable has died. The Misfits had just finished filming, and word immediately gets back to Marilyn Monroe that the cast of the film blames her for Clark Gable's death. Not only the cast of the film, but the wife of Clark Gable at the time, Kay Spreckles, also blames Marilyn. Why are they saying Marilyn is the woman to blame? She threw off production, her illnesses, her delays, the number of takes it took, so on and so forth. Clark Gable will be quoted just a few days before the end of the film. What the hell is that girl's problem? God damn it, I like her, but she's so damn unprofessional. I damn near went nuts up there in Reno waiting for her to show. Christ, she didn't show up until after lunch some days. I'm glad this picture's finished. She damn near gave me a heart attack. It was the day after filming rap that Clark Gable does suffer that heart attack and will pass away, but come on. Nobody can put this on Marilyn Monroe after the full and pleasure-filled life that Clark Gable did lead. Although mixed with tragedy, what I'm saying is, at least in my opinion, I don't think Clark Gable's death is Marilyn Monroe's fault. But Marilyn will still feel like she is somehow responsible. Remember, Clark Gable was her idol, her father figure. Lena Pepitone finds Marilyn one night leaning out of her high-rise window, This is back in New York. Lena Pepitone will pull Marilyn back and Marilyn sobs. Let me die. I want to die. I deserve to die. What have I got to live for? Marilyn is trying, but Marilyn is breaking. Early in 1961, Marilyn is coerced by her New York psychiatrist, Dr. Mariana Chris, to go to the Payne Whitney in Manhattan. Marilyn will sign in as Faye Miller and honestly, She's just looking for a nap. Rest, some sleep, a little bit of detox off the pills, a cushy few days just to take a break. But that is not what Marilyn encounters at the Payne Whitney. Marilyn is entered as a high-risk patient, a patient with potential ideas of self-destruction. Marilyn's clothes are taken, all of her possessions are taken, and she is thrown into a bare room with iron bars. Here's Marilyn Monroe with a grandmother who died in a mental institution, Marilyn Monroe with a mother who has been in a mental institution for decades. I can only imagine how terrible those iron bars look to her. This is her worst nightmare coming true. She wants out. She will strip from her hospital clothing and bang on the door. She'll stand in front of the window outside of the hospital, nude, trying to get attention from someone, from anyone. This is a maximum security wing, friends. Marilyn is so angry, she throws a chair through the window. Because of this, Marilyn is now straight-jacketed and sedated. Marilyn will recall the staff of the Payne Whitney coming to look at her bound and drugged, all night long saying she felt like a curiosity piece. Finally, Marilyn Monroe will find a way to get one phone call, and she will make that one phone call to Joe DiMaggio, who promptly gets her the hell out of pain, Whitney, thank the Lord, and checked into instead Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center. Here, Marilyn is admitted normally, allowed to keep her clothes, and given the treatment she needs to wean off some of her dependency on pills. 
The call that Marilyn makes that reconnects her and gets her some needed assistance from Joe DiMaggio is the call that will reconnect Marilyn and Joe from this point on within her life. They will remain in contact after this over the next coming years. Marilyn Monroe is released three weeks later, just in time for a few things to go down. Because, friends, we've made it now into January 1961, and it's a new dawn, it's a new day. A new administration coming on to the scene. All that work, both legal and illegal, does get Jack Kennedy into the White House. All plans have been successful. John F. Kennedy is sworn into office January the 20th, 1961. Marilyn Monroe is not present at his inauguration. Marilyn has other plans. Our girl is down in Mexico, finalizing her divorce from Arthur Miller, which will be completed the following day, January the 21st, 1961. The divorce between the couple is granted on incompatibility of character. That makes a lot of sense to me. Let's go ahead and visit the uh, new Kennedy administration for a moment and bring some of our other players back into this drama. JFK is sworn in. Man, he is grateful. Throwing all kinds of gratitude to his jackpack. Frank and Peter and the like for all of their assistance in helping him get elected. They have done so much to assist and, well, Jack will reward them by having Peter and Frank coordinate the inaugural balls. See, Frank Sinatra has given Jack anything Jack has asked for in the last few years. Women, access to his home, access to whatever Frank can do for Jack. And since Frank reconnected with Patricia and Peter, Frank has been Jack's guy. Nothing is unavailable to Jack Kennedy, at least by Frank Sinatra's standards. Frank isn't going to say no to helping out with the balls to celebrate Jack's inauguration. And Frank's even going to escort Jacqueline Kennedy to one of those balls. But it is Frank and Peter, Sinatra and Lawford, producing the inaugural balls. And, well, it does not go great between the two. There's a lot of fighting between them. I want everybody to know here that the fracture between Peter and Frank is already in place at this point. It is going to fracture worse in our next episode, but I just want you to know the mirror is already cracked here. They disagree about everything. The right look, the right tone, and, well, all of it. James Spada in The Man Who Kept the Secrets will explain it this way. What happened was an enormous snowstorm, and most of the performers could not get there. Frank was just driven crazy by the tension and all the stuff that was going on. He was fearful it'd be a total disaster. He said, Expletive, Lawford. I am not going to do this show. Nobody seemed to know why Frank was mad at Peter. Here's a little bit more context for you. See, Frank Sinatra has huge plans for the inauguration. One of these was the pre-inaugural gala. It's Friday night, January 20th, 1961. And this is a super big televised show that Frank Sinatra is not only hosting, but producing. And he has worked his tail off, admittedly, to make it all go down. The plan was to have 
all kinds of stars, both black and white, perform for this star-studded production. Everybody's lined up. Frank Sinatra, Ethel Merman, Harry Belafonte, Sidney Poitier, Janet Leigh, Tony Curtis, Jimmy Durante, Nat King Cole, Gene Kelly, Ella Fitzgerald. Frank Sinatra has drawn all the top talent in, even coercing Leland Hayward to close two of his shows on Broadway in order to get both Ethel Merman and Laurence Olivier to the event. The goal naturally is to raise cash. Tickets for the in-person performance of the star-studded gala will go from $100 a person up to about $10,000 for a group with the goal of raising a little less than $2 million for the Democratic Party. This television extravaganza special should communicate to the American public that it is a new dawn, a new day in this administration, and the Kennedy administration will be looking at arts and talent of all kinds of folks. Or at least, that's what they say they're trying to do, I suppose. But let's hearken back to Sammy Davis. I'm not sure if the administration is quite as advanced as it thinks it is, but alas. Sammy Davis is persona non grata for that show. His disinvitation to that performance will change Sammy Davis's political affiliation from Democratic to Republican and also pretty much cement the end of his friendship for a while with Frank Sinatra. Okay, so what happens? Here we have all the stars, all the performances. Frank is ready to shine with a capital S. And the show does go on in the event center, but the television special part that was supposed to be broadcast to the American public was never aired on NBC. Why? Again, a blizzard hits Washington, D.C. There's no power. There's no anything. And it's not really a great way to broadcast live as a lot of folks are having difficulty getting into the city. And once they're there, the broadcasting people are having a hard time keeping feeds up and active for the program, at least to broadcast nationwide. The star-studded spectacular television special was actually seen for the first time in the year 2017 on public broadcasting stations, many, many moons after the original recording in 1961. All the chaos and conflict there might give you some insight into the big mad of Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra's been big mad for, I don't know, a lot of time, but again, I want you to remember that Frank is going to take out his big mad on Peter Lawford, and the relationship is only going to go downhill from this point on. Next month up, February 1961, does see the release of the film The Misfits. Mixed reviews here about the film taking Marilyn, who is already in a pretty fragile state, into a more fragile state. 1961 for Marilyn is a year is away from the public eye. It is underground. It is a year of therapy. It is a year of health challenges. It is a year of surgeries. It is a year of rebuilding something, I think, in herself. 1961 is very quiet for her. Marilyn will be quoted saying, If I am generally anything, I guess I'm generally miserable. I would like to be more sociable than I am on some days. I could easily be alone. I don't mind it. 
I want to go ahead and move up a few months here in our national landscape. April 1961 will bring us the Bay of Pigs. The Bay of Pigs is not Jack Kennedy's idea. This planned invasion of Cuba was already in the works from the previous administration. It goes poorly. That might be too kind. It goes really, really, really bad. The idea, at least in the mind of the CIA, is that once Americans come on board down to invade Cuba, Cubans will join them and everybody will get together for a overthrow of Fidel Castro. The Bay of Pigs does not go down like that. It is a failure of the most colossal sort, leaving John Kennedy accepting the blame for it, but suffering the consequences. For the CIA, the failed Bay of Pigs attempt just makes them more determined to get to Fidel Castro. Because remember, the CIA is dipping into all kinds of fun stuff here at this time. Let's use LSD for espionage. Uh, We got the whole mess with United Fruit in South America. Back in the last episode, we've heard about those poisoned cigars and Johnny Roselli and Howard Hughes' assistant and all the plans for all the taking out hits on Castro. The spy games are not starting at this point at the Bay of Pigs. They are continuing like they have done now for years and years and years. And whoa, so many of our players are all slung up in the fun and game spy stuff, either knowingly or unknowingly. Covering the history of that is a multi-season podcast all on its own. Investigators, what are the things I want you to know that pertain to our investigation here? Robert Kennedy, John's brother, also the Attorney General, does know that Giancana is involved up to his eyelids in all of the spy games. In the attempts to oust Castro, he's into it, along with all the other players in the Mafia, working with the current CIA in place. This is a well-connected network of players with all kinds of aims and goals depending on who is siding with who on any particular given day. Now, remember from our last episode, by 1961, 1962, Sam G. and Kana been keeping time with Judith Campbell Exner. Remember, she is serving, Judith is, as a courier between Sam Giancana and John Kennedy, making at least 70 verified calls to the White House in these two years, Judith does. And remember, Sam Giancana feels like Jack Kennedy owes him, and owes him big for, well, you know, pulling all the strings to get Jack elected. Or so Sam thinks. And maybe, you know, again, Sam's thinking here, the Kennedys could just be cool since I did all those nice things for them. But here comes young crusader for justice, Bobby Kennedy, and he, as attorney general in his department of justice, is coming down, coming after, target on Sam Giancana and all his mafia friends. Speaking of mafia, this is also the year 1961 that Frank Sinatra will gift a white poodle to Marilyn Monroe, which Marilyn will name Moff, shortened for Mafia, naturally. This little pup is to cheer up Marilyn post-divorce from Arthur Miller. Interesting little thread here. Frank Sinatra will buy Moff from Natalie Wood's mother. Also, Moff, 
sleeps on a very expensive white beaver coat that Frank Sinatra will also give Marilyn Monroe. A pretty, luxurious dog bed for a little puppy. That luxurious dog bed has actually been moved out and is residing in the state of California by the end of 1961, early 1962, with Marilyn really having taken some strides this year. One of the most important to her, a real way for her to show the independence that she is now harnessing, Marilyn Monroe will buy a home in Brentwood on 5th Helena Drive, and 1962 begins a whole new year of what she hopes will be wonderful. 1960-1961 is Marilyn trying, and it is here we're going to wrap this episode today which will have us returning to the year 1962 when we pick up for our next episode, Marilyn Monroe, in her last year, the last eight months of her life. Investigators, thank you, thank you for joining me today. I cannot tell you how grateful I am for you coming to listen, for your kind emails, your kind reviews, and extra big thanks again to our Patreon community. Stay tuned for a bonus Not Done Yet episode coming later this week, too, pertaining to everything that didn't fit in this story. Sincere thanks all around to each and every one of you. Until we meet again, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.